energy. It's vital to heat, cool, make, move. But can we wean ourselves off fossil fuels and onto sustainable sources of energy that are reliable and accessible to all? Three decades ago, fossil fuels provided 81%, roughly, and now still provide 80%, roughly. The World Economic Forum's Energy Transition Index has been rating countries across a range of indicators for 10 years, and the latest report comes after an extraordinary year. The world was in crisis. This was painful. People had to fundamentally change their lives, and global emissions only dropped 4 or 5%. So even with the world going absolutely crazy last year and nobody being able to go anywhere, we're nowhere near the path that we need to be on. Greenhouse gas emissions are already back from that COVID-induced blip. So is there any hope? In this episode, we hear from one of the authors of the Energy Transition Index. We are seeing things moving faster. 92 of the 115 countries that we have analyzed in the Energy Transition Index are doing better today than they were a decade ago. And this energy reporter tells us what we should be looking out for this year. We're going to see a lot of movement on the policy side in the run-up to COP26 and obviously with the Biden administration trying to polish up the United States' climate image. Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might try to solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, take a moment to like and review us and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum with a look at the global energy transition This is Radio Davos. For the last 10 years, the World Economic Forum, in collaboration with Accenture, has produced an annual energy transition index. It measures the performance of the energy systems of 115 countries in three areas, economic development and growth, environmental sustainability and energy security. Later in the programme, I'll be asking Reuters energy correspondent Shalia Nasrallah for her take on the report. But first, let's hear from one of its authors, Pedro Gomez, Head of Oil and Gas Industry Affairs at the World Economic Forum. I started by asking him, what exactly do we mean when we talk of an energy transition? You know, this is one of the the critical questions, because based on, on my experience on this sector for the last few years, I've discovered that there are as many definitions on energy transition as there are people that have thought on the matter. So on the forum, we have come up with what I think is a very good definition. It's a definition that uh, certainly looks at the environmental element, which is what you will hear in most definitions, but ours is more encompassing. We think of energy transition as the timely transformation of energy systems into, into a setup in which they can deliver more effectively on the environmental angle, for sure. And within that, the climate angle, which is a critical element today, but they can also deliver more on the economic growth. There are stronger supporters of inclusive economic growth. They have security and access as one of the priorities. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's, it's what we call the energy triangle. Three pieces, not only the environmental piece, but, but the others, which I think are critical for true success uh, when we talk about energy transition. Let's start with the first thing you mentioned there, which was the environment and climate change. I'll just read a quote from the report here. In 2018, 81% of the world's energy was still supplied by fossil fuels. So if we're going to be phasing out fossil fuels over the next 10, 20 years, that's still a massive a massive challenge. I mean, is there any good news in there when it comes to climate change? It is a massive challenge. And perhaps one other data point there is that that 81% has been sort of stable for the last three decades. So three decades ago, fossil fuels provided 81% roughly, and now still provide 80% roughly. So they are pretty sticky. 
However, I think we we do have reasons to to be optimist. We think uh, the numbers show that there has been unprecedented acceleration, uh, primarily due to technological development, but also to a lot to a growing of political support. The Paris Agreement really took uh, an important and it was an important piece in, in the growing political support. However, there are still critical challenges uh, when when we are talking about delivering sustainable energy. And and yes. Uh, Maybe last year in 2020 with the pandemic, we saw the emissions drop a bit, but this, uh, this, this decrease in the emission was not a structural deliberate thing. It was a result of a, almost a complete halt at some point of economic and social activity. So we cannot, we cannot bank on those reductions. And in fact, they have rebounded and they are back where they were even uh, before the pandemic levels, more or less. Yeah, I'd noticed that in IEA, International Energy Agency data, they were already back higher than not last year, but the year before, right? So even when the economies still aren't properly back to doing what they should be, even without that, the rebound has just been immediate, right? And again, this is because there was not a strong structural change in economic and social activity that would lead to a permanent uh, decrease in, in emissions. But we are seeing things moving faster. Uh, for example, the data shows that uh, 92 of the 115 countries that we have analyzed in, in the Energy Transition Index are doing better today than they were a decade ago. So that's, that's definitely a positive movement. On the flip side, not everyone has managed to be moving uh, consistently upwards. So it has been more of up and downs. The good news there is that one of the biggest economies, which is China, is one, uh, one of the 13 countries that were able to maintain a steady upward trajectory, which is, is good news. If, if that happens in that big part of, of the world with that uh, much growth coming in the next few years, that's also a positive element. So could you break that down a little for us? Because you're looking, as you said, not just at the environmental side, but also the access to energy the kind of resilience of energy structures in, in somewhere like China. I mean, what, what are they doing that's going in the right direction? We can start with, you probably have heard very recent, well, last year they, they pledged to be net zero uh, in, in the next few decades by 2060. I think that is very positive. They are a champion in renewable energy, particularly solar. They're also moving their vehicle fleet into more electric. So there are many things that China is doing. Of course, there's still some elements that the index shows that they have areas of opportunity. The fossil fuel uh, element of electricity production is still high. We count on China to definitely do, as they have their ambition, they will be doing some actions, right? So the pledge, the ambitions, they are follow up with roadmaps. And I, I think this is one of the elements that applies to China, but applies to every country in the world that has made a, uh, has made a commitment to, to reach net zero, whether that's 2050, 60, or a different date. Those commitments need to be followed up with, with uh, strong roadmaps, strong milestones, uh, concrete actions. And mm. I think this is positive, a positive element that we are, do, we are definitely seeing in, in some parts of the world. Uh, yeah, I wonder, are we seeing that? Um, it seems it's easy for a politician, either in a democracy or in a planned economy like China, someone who probably won't be around in 30 years time to say, oh, in 30 years time, we'll achieve this, you know, the almost impossible goal of net zero. That's a really easy promise to make. 
but they have to actually make policy decisions right now. Are, are we seeing those policy decisions being made around the world? I think we are. It, not not everywhere in the same with the same degree, but I think we are. And one of the biggest elements that I think is positive. Uh, that is uh, that has changed a bit uh, since the Paris Agreement. I think in the Paris Agreement there was a prim- primarily uh, a notion of governments of nation states taking commitments. Uh, but even then, the the private sector, the business side, was already was already moving, was already trying to support this process. Right now, I think we we see that uh, that happening in 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 a, in a definitely uh, increased speed particularly where we sit here at the forum with the main initiatives that we have, we see businesses trying to be part of, of this activity as well. Of course, those uh, commitments that businesses are making, they also need to be followed uh, with concrete actions, with concrete roadmaps. And I think only time will tell. It's, it's difficult. Uh, the journey ahead is not an easy one. And I think that's why we call it energy transition. This is not an overnight change, Robin. I think we will have to wait until we, we start seeing, particularly in the, in the emissions element, that we are getting into the trajectory that we need to be if we are to achieve the 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius trajectory that we want to be in. Could we talk a bit about the adoption of renewable energies? Again, I'll cite from the report between 2011 and 2019, there was a seven-fold increase in photovoltaic solar power and three-fold for wind energy. Those sound like big figures, don't they? But as we said before, the share of renewables has stayed the same. They're running to stand still there, aren't they, with, with that growth? They've not actually taken a bigger part of the, the pie. Not yet, but uh, in these 30 years, the pie has grown a lot. So the fact that we have impressive growth uh, in renewables is, is, very, is very important. And also perhaps one on, on the positive side as well. Last year, renewable energy, particularly solar, was the more resilient investment in the energy sector that there was. So that also signals that on the investor side, they are looking very strongly into the carbon footprint of the allocation of capital, which is definitely something that we we are to see if we need to go into the trajectory that that the that the Paris Agreement has has given us. So this index has been going for 10 years. Has there been an attitude shift, do you think? Are they playing in the Premier League now, these uh, renewables? Definitely, yes. Some of the largest energy companies now, uh, they are focused on, on renewable energy, whether that's wind, solar, or, or, or otherwise. So definitely, yes, they are, they, are the, they are up-and-comers for sure. They're not only up-and-comers. They're already established uh, players in the energy world. And also attitudes outside those companies that are working primarily on low carbon energy or no carbon energy have also shifted their, their opinions. Uh, there are good examples uh, of companies, for example, in the oil and gas space, uh, accepting that they should be part of the solution. And they are forming alliances, trying to work collaboratively to achieve pragmatic solutions to reduce the, the emissions of, of their sector. So I think there are positive messages from the business sector for sure. And I don't know if you were following, but last year, the, the World Economic Forum has pushed, has published uh, what we call the stakeholder capitalism metrics. And basically talking about the importance and their, the, the rising relevance of ESG performance when investors, financiers are allocating their, their capital. Yeah, so, environmental, social and governance, ESG correct. performance. 
correct, environmental, social, and governance performance, of which the E in this three-letter three acronym is, is primordial in this time. We have what we feel is the, what we have, many, many are labeling the a decade to deliver on climate action, on sustainable development goals, and we need to act fast to be sure that in this decade we are creating the, the right actions, the right trajectories, so that we are where we need to be if we are to comply with Paris. We need a transition that addresses the, the element that the, the economy is electrifying, but not everything can be electrified as easily as other parts. The electrification of mobility is taking place, it's growing, it's still not a sizable part of the, of the global fleet, but it will get there. But there are what they have, what they have been labeling the hard to abate sectors. So beyond personal vehicles, there are a number of sectors that need to manage their, their emissions. Electrification would play a part there, but there's a number of things that need to happen for, for this to take place. I think there's a lot of technology that we need to, to be scaling up. There are a number of things that, that we, we should be doing in terms of neutralizing emissions, because you often hear the concept of net zero. Uh, and net zero is different than zero. In net zero, there are emissions that need to be neutralized, that need to be offset. And for that, we need a good approach to nature-based solutions. Forestry, reforestation play a big part, biodiversity as well. We also need to invest in, in technologies like carbon capture, utilization, and storage. In most of the scenarios that you will see, it's critical that we have CCUS working very well to achieve the, the trajectories and to achieve the carbon neutrality that we are aiming for. Are we starting to see those projects happen, the carbon sequestration? We are, but it will take time. It's again, transition is a journey, it's not an overnight shift. And for this to take place perhaps uh, more rapidly, I think there is an element of, and, and of course, coming from the forum, this is a bit of how we see uh, uh, many of the solutions. We need more, more public-private collaboration. We need the private sector to, to speak to governments, to speak to civil society and vice versa. Uh, we need this to happen in, in, in every part of the world, but particularly in emerging markets where the bulk of the demand and the bulk of the emissions uh, will take place. Uh, and yes, to, to your question, this is happening. Of course, we need to find levers that can accelerate these things, the just transition, uh, supporting international collaboration across stakeholders, and of course, addressing these challenges that we are facing in the hard to abate sectors. Pedro Gomez, head of oil and gas at the World Economic Forum, who helped put together this year's Energy Transition Index. You're listening to Radio Davos. After this short break, we'll be back with Reuters energy correspondent Shadia Nasrallah for her take on the report. If you're going to lead other people, you need to start with yourself. How do you impact the world? That's a key question Hans Vestberg asks himself in his role as Verizon's CEO. Hans sees leadership as a profession, one he can constantly improve on, adapting to new needs and examining everything from his focus to his mood. This is super nerdy, I'm sorry, but I have everything in Excel. I can plot from 2009 every month up to 2021. Knowing the impact his role can have, he's dedicated himself to bridging connectivity gaps on a global scale, a move that can change lives and opportunities for billions. He'll talk about all that and more on the World Economic Forum podcast, Meet the Leader. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
You're listening to Radio Davos, where we're looking at the World Economic Forum's Energy Transition Index. I spoke to a journalist who specialises in the business of energy, Reuters correspondent Shadia Nasrallah, and started by asking Shadia what was the most striking part of the report for her. If we think about the kind of big picture, uh, in 2019, we hit a record of global emissions. Um, Temperatures in general have risen, you know, more than a degree... um, Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Uh, And obviously the big prize is to keep that global warming below 1.5. And, you know, we think about all the huge disruptions we had last year. When the world was in crisis, this was painful. People had to fundamentally change their lives. And global emissions only dropped 4 or 5% to get to keep as, or to, to, to position us on the path to keep global warming below 1.5%, it's estimated that you need to have annual reductions of 7% of global emissions. So even with the world going absolutely crazy last year and nobody being able to go anywhere, we're nowhere near the path that we need to be on. There are some points of hope, though, aren't there, in this report? Here's one I've pulled out. More than 80% of new global energy capacity was renewable. If we look at offshore wind, solar, power, there's unbelievable amount of deal making going on. Um, we see companies that we associate with fossil fuels such as um, BP, Total, pouring billions of dollars into renewables. But obviously this still comes from a fairly low starting point. But the scale of growth is insane. I looked at some graphics here, data from the Global Wind Energy Council, annual installation forecast. So that's stuff that gets built fresh every year. If we look at just Europe and Asia, which are currently the biggest regions for offshore wind, we're at like 10 gigawatts of installed capacity added this year. And then we go up to 2030 and look, like you know, halfway through 2021, that's not that far away. Just for those two regions, Europe and Asia, we're getting to about 30 gigawatts. The pace of growth in this is huge. Meanwhile, oil and gas demand, it's probably not going to drop off a cliff in that time, right? So we will probably see the sort of carbon intensity of our energy mix fall, the emissions per unit of energy produced. But that doesn't mean that overall emissions fall. And this is actually really interesting. This is a pet interest of mine in carbon accounting is, you know, there's an awful lot of talk, especially in corporate pledges about emissions intensity. And great, that's important. But you can, for example, still keep producing more and more fossil fuels. If you add some renewables to your portfolio, then your overall intensity falls, even if your absolute emissions rise. So if we're thinking about uh, people putting their money where their mouth is, uh, if we look at the uh, market capitalization of BP, it's at about $85 billion. NextEra, which is probably a company most people have never heard of, which is a a US-based renewables company, is at $160 billion market cap. So that's about twice the amount of BP. So that tells you something about how the big money is thinking about this. It's great that renewables 
rise and they are rising and people are putting their money where their mouth is. But given that the world keeps needing more and more energy doesn't actually mean absolute emissions reductions, which is obviously what we need to have. There's a figure here from the report, total coal power generation, this is globally, grew by 14% in the last decade. We knew, everybody knew coal is the most um, um, heavily emitting fossil fuel when it comes to um, carbon dioxide. But there you go, still a 14% rise in the last 10 years. There's, there's a big debate, and it's, it's quite interesting if we, I think about what I'm covering this year, is how the European Union is legislating natural gas. So the easiest way, in a, one might argue, to replace coal to power is turning those plants into gas to power. In the best case scenario, that really cuts the emissions quite a lot. And hopefully at some point in the future, we will have commercially scalable um, carbon capture units. The EU is working on a lot of legislation this year um, about natural gas. And, you know, the EU is the biggest gas importer already in the world, imports a ton of gas from Russia, which has extremely leaky infrastructure. So how do you deal with that? This is one of the big themes, really, for climate policy this year. Will the EU, for example, introduce disincentives to import into the EU gas that is associated with a lot of emissions outside of the bloc. You know, how do you do that? You're a lawmaker in Europe. How can you tell another country or another producer outside of the EU, we really want to force you to, to do something about your leaks? You know, you could have a kind of methane or carbon tax, border tax, anyway. Because the leaking of natural gas, that gas itself is a very powerful greenhouse gas once it's in the atmosphere. Natural gas is uh, mainly made up of methane, which is a, a type of carbon. And methane is a greenhouse gas that in uh, the, its first 20 years in the atmosphere is something like 85 times more potent in warming the planet than carbon dioxide. The other big EU question is the taxonomy, which is one of those words that I didn't know what it was before I started covering this. Basically, a rule book that means in the EU you're allowed to call this type of investment green and sustainable, but you're not allowed to call this thing green and sustainable. So that will have huge impact on pension funds or, you know, like the way that these investments are marketed. How do you deal with gas as a transition fuel? You know, give, do, do you give it some kind of sustainability label because it might replace coal? You know, do you make it more attractive uh, by giving it this label so it's easier to replace coal power plants, say in Poland? Or do you say, no, 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 we have to like have the big final goal in view which is we don't want any fossil fuels. So there's this whole tug of war now. There's no global consensus on what it actually means to be Paris aligned. But the other thing that I think would be worth mentioning that I think is not necessarily on everyone's radar, but is a huge deal. It's a bit of a niche subject, but it could make a real difference this year as well, is carbon offsets. They've been around for ages. I'm sure people have seen they book a flight online and then you can pay five quid extra. Say, okay, this is going to help some forestation project somewhere. And that way I have offset the emissions associated with my flight. So this is becoming a huge deal for huge corporations. For example, Shell is pledging to offset something like 120 million tons of CO2 equivalent per year with things like forestation and other nature-based solutions to create carbon offset credits. 
And then think about all the other corporations out there that have made net zero pledges now. You almost struggle to find a multinational company that hasn't made some kind of net zero pledge. And the operative word here is net zero. It doesn't mean that they're not going to emit any emissions by 2050 or whatever time frame. A lot of that will depend on these offset certificates. Currently, there's no global standard for this. It's a totally unregulated market. There's different marketplaces. The prices are all over the place. The fact that there is no standard or global oversight, I mean, I think a lot of people will book their flight tickets. They'll think, well, I could pay five pounds, but there's no guarantee. You know, there are so many different schemes Who's to know the scheme you're signing up to is real? And then if at a more a corporate level, who's to know whether you'll be able to legally, you know, whether that'll be justified and you can say to your shareholders or to the regulators, I've achieved net zero because I have this certificate. We don't know if that certificate will be worth that, do we yet in, in 10 years time? Yes, uh, indeed, this is uh, exactly the problem. And people like Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, and now, you know, guru of uh, financial climate related risk. This is, again, one of his pet projects to standardize uh, the offset market to really scale it up so that money floods these projects. This effort will also culminate at the uh, big climate conference that's planned for November in uh, Glasgow. COP26. The Conference of the Parties to the UN Climate Convention. Uh, Mark Carney actually spoke to me on this podcast a few weeks ago on the subject that you were talking about. I'll put a link into the article that accompanies this episode so listeners can find that. Uh, the Energy Transition Index, as well as climate and sustainability, looked at the resilience of countries' energy systems. Shadia, what did you make of the data on that? The report told us that a lot more people now have access to electricity. But it doesn't necessarily mean the quality of that access is also getting better. A great example of that was the cold snap in Texas earlier this year. This is not even a country that you might call developing or emerging. You know, this is a very advanced economy, but an extreme weather event, which is something that will get more frequent with climate change, just knocked out electricity for millions of people. It's not just about having some kind of infrastructure for electricity, but also thinking about making that infrastructure more reliable in extreme weather events. Finally then, Shadia, is there anything in the Energy Transition Index or indeed the world of energy generally that you cover for Reuters that gives you optimism? I find this really difficult because to get back to the scale of the challenge, you know, the sort of annual reduction of 7% of global emissions and that's something that not even with the COVID restrictions the world managed to get to, it's huge, but um, this year especially, I think we're going to see a lot of movement on the policy side uh, in the run-up to COP26 and uh, in the EU and obviously with the Biden administration trying to polish up the United States' climate image after the Trump administration. I feel there is hope for this year. Reuters energy correspondent Shadia Nasrallah. To find out more about the Energy Transition Index, please visit wef.ch slash energy21. And for an article that accompanies this episode of Radio Davos, please visit wef.ch slash podcasts, where you'll also find our whole back catalogue of podcasts. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked it, please leave us a review and join in the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. 
This episode was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks for listening to Radio Davos, and goodbye. <laughs>